Welcome to the Gray Area Podcast, where we have the conversations people are afraid to have with the people they're afraid of. And this conversation I'm about to have is, is with the guy who is the most viewed Catholic YouTube podcaster. I think over 400 million views or something like that, and over <laughs> 400,000 subscribers. He's a best-selling author of 11 books. And um, is is Dr. Taylor Marshall? <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Bryson. Great to be with you, man. This is going to be fun. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, uh, like, like I said before, I before I hit record, the reason I'm doing this sort of series is to give people insight in uh, in into other. I don't even want to say other religions because you're a Christian. I'm a Christian, but other, you know other types of Christianity and other religions. So, you know, yesterday I talked to a, a Orthodox Jewish rabbi and, and now I'm talking to a Catholic. And the reason why is because a lot of these things are so polarizing and controversial that there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of things that are, that are said that make the conversations intellectually dishonest on all sides. So I'm trying to just like clear the conversation. So when the conversation truly happens, people can be like, okay, at least I have a sort of an understanding of what this group believes. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. So are you ready to get, to, are you ready to get to these questions? Man, bring it, hammer me, pepper me. Okay. So I'm going to start with one that I have, then I'm going to get into to, to more of the, you know, audience type questions. So the, the question is, when I read Catholic.com, it says salvation is in the church. And my question is, does that mean you have to be a part of the Catholic Church to receive salvation? The short answer is absolutely yes. And you see that in the scriptures, because if you read the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, I mean, we'll just jump all the way to the end, right? It At the very end of the apocalypse, you see the bride of Christ. And we know from St. Paul, we also know from the Gospels, the bride of Christ is the church. Now, did Christ found 40,000 different denominations? Are you he, asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Um, I don't think he found multiple uh, 40,000 denominations, but there were multiple churches, though. But he says one church. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And there's only one bride of Christ. So Christ is not a polygamist. He doesn't have two churches, he has one church. So if there's one church, there's one church. You can't say like, well, there's the Lutheran church that, and then there's the Presbyterian church, and then there's the Methodist church. There's one true church. And I mean, I used to be an evangelical. I used to be a Protestant, but I always ask the question, well, like they disagree on infant baptism, or they disagree on the Lord's Supper, or they disagree on you know, elders or whatever, I was like, how can it be that for at least a thousand years, there was one united church, and then there was the schism with the East, and then the Protestant schism. Clearly, whatever was the original universal collection of believers on earth, that is the one bride of Christ. And so I think that's one of the most compelling reasons for becoming a Catholic is, you know, you know, Bryson, you read the Old Testament, were all the priests in the Old Testament good? All the high priests, all the kings? No, man, they were some bad high priests, bad kings, bad everybody. Does that mean you could go and start your own Israel down the street? Like, oh, we're the Israel 2.0? No. You had to stay within the institution that God founded through Moses. Well, actually, I mean, it's generated from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you were stuck. You were there. And I think that's what we need as Christians. We need to be challenged. We can't go and start 4,001 denominations because we disagree. There must be one true church on earth. And it says in the book of Revelation, you're either in that church or you're not in that church. Okay, thank you. And just, just to clear, just to make it more clear for people, um, does that mean, though, that people outside of the church won't enter the kingdom? So... To be very specific and using the word, there's only one church and you must be in the mystical body of Christ, which is connected to the church. So if you're not in the one true church, you will not enter the kingdom. You will not go to heaven. You're probably asking me maybe 
well, what about like a really holy, pious old Methodist lady who never becomes Catholic? Is she going to go to heaven? That's what you're asking, right? Yeah, sort of like that, yeah. Yeah, so in the Catholic Church, we have this doctrine called invincible ignorance. So you can be ignorant, you can be in good faith, but you can be ignorant on certain items. And if it's not your fault, God's not going to punish you for that. Okay, thank you. Um, Now for questions that, you know, a lot of people have. That was one question I had because I've That's heard a good different question. responses. That's probably the hardest question you could get me. Oh, that the question I just asked? Yeah. Well, I asked it because when I talk to <clears throat> different Catholics that aren't Catholic teachers, I get <clears throat> different responses. So I'm like, so I'm like, I need to talk to someone right. who's actually, you know, well-versed in Catholicism. <laughs> you know, so. well, the, the, the classic and, formulation in Latin is extra ecclesia nola salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation because there's only one true church. Yeah. Thank you for answering it okay. so bluntly also. Yep. All right. Now, <clears throat> which has more authority, scripture or tradition? Okay, so first off, we got to define scripture because the Bible, a lot of people don't know this, but the Bible isn't just a thing. There's the Ethiopian Bible, which is different from the Greek Bible. And then there's the Roman Catholic Bible. And then there's the Protestant Reformation Bible. So we have to ask ourselves when we say scripture, what are we talking about? And most people say, well, I'm talking about the Protestant Reformation Bible. You have to say, well, for the last 2000 years, most Christians didn't hold to that version of the Bible. And even today in this year, most Christians on earth don't hold to that version of the Bible. And that kind of raises the question, where did we get the Bible? And we got the Bible from sacred tradition. So I think that kind of answers your question. The word of God is inspired by the Holy Ghost. But tradition is sort of the, the mechanism that brings it from one generation to the next and helps interpret and understand it. Otherwise, if you take the tradition away, you end up with 40,000 different denominations. Like you have to have scripture and tradition connected. So it's not like there's two things that are in competition, the Bible and tradition. They're actually organically connected and moving through time from Jesus and the apostles all the way to today. So basically you're saying they're equal in a way. I I guess if you had to like push me hard, I'd say they're equal. <laughs> what, what we Catholics say, just we, we call the deposit of faith. So you can think of like, if you went to a bank or let's just say you're, you're God and you say, I'm going to put a billion dollars in the bank. That's the deposit of faith. Over 2000 years, you can't go in and take five bucks out and throw it away or add five bucks in and change it. There's the deposit of faith all the doctrines that Christ revealed to the apostles, he put it in the church and we understand it through scripture and tradition, but you can't change the deposit. So I would say scripture and tradition are part of that deposit. Okay. And I'm going to ask two more questions from other people. Yep. Then I'm going to go back to ask someone that I want to be asked. Cause you know, uh, do this one's kind of weird. I don't even know. I don't even know how to word it. Let me try to reword it. Um, <clears throat> Do you, do do Catholics believe that you have to be baptized to enter the kingdom? And I think the answer to that is yes. But I also have a question of children or babies, for example. Um, if you can, if if you want to dive into that. Yes. Okay. So in John chapter three, verses three through five, I believe it is. He says that you enter the kingdom through water and the spirit. You enter the kingdom through water and the spirit. We interpret that as baptism. Uh, I believe it's also St. Peter says in first Peter, baptism now saves you. So um, if you have baptism, but you don't have faith and you don't have love for God and your neighbor, baptism doesn't do anything. It's, it's, it doesn't save you. So baptism is what we call the instrumental cause of salvation. It's the instrument by which God delivers you grace and salvation. So baptism is the means by which we enter the church. And a parallel to that was in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. How did you enter into the people of God? Well, in the book of Genesis, I believe it was chapter 17, God said circumcision is the mark that brings you into the covenant. And it was a sign of justification, and circumcision was a sign of of uh, salvation and belong to people of God. 
And so we as Catholics say, well, for the entire Old Testament, God always incorporated the children of believers inside the people of God, always, even girls, they received a mikvah or a washing. Uh, that was a ceremonial thing that brought them in. Boys had the mikvah and the circumcision. They always incorporated the children of believers with a sacramental or covenantal sign placed upon the child. And so moving into the New Testament, we see in Colossians chapter 2 that baptism replaces circumcision or functions for circumcision. And if that's the case, if Paul says that in Colossians 2, that means baptism as the sacramental sign of incorporation in the new covenant should also be applied to babies. And that's why we baptize babies also because okay. of original of original sin, but that's a different topic. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Now I'm, I'm asking the one that everybody wants to know, and I'm going to go ahead and get out the way now. Um, it's going to be about Mary. About, uh, uh, yes, about Mary. Now, yeah. I, I know um, from research that y'all don't pray to Mary. Y'all pray for Mary to pray for y'all in a way, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, so, now, but for the viewers, can you explain what it means to pray for Mary to pray for you. Can you explain that? And also um, just Mary period. It, it, like, where does it, like, where, where, is, where does it come from in the Bible? Is she perfect? And if, if so, if that's also in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we know that our Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the 10 commandments, right? He came to fulfill the law, not abolish the law. We agree with that. Right. So one of the commandments is honor your father and mother. And we know that Jesus came and honored the Father perfectly. He didn't do like 89% honor God the Father. He honored God the Father perfectly. But also, in order for him to fulfill the Torah and the law, he has to honor his mother. And so if you think of that, she's not a goddess, all right? She is a woman. She is a created person, all right? She doesn't pre-exist. She's not the fourth member of the Trinity. And all these things are wrong. But that means that he honored her more than any other human, any other creature in all time and forever because he fulfilled the law. She was his mother, truly, and he honors his mother. And so if that is what we are to do, if we're to follow Jesus, we also perfectly worship God. But in the created world, we honor the mother. And that's why on the cross, he says, behold, he only has seven things he says on the cross, seven last words when he's hanging on the cross. One of the things he says is behold your mother. And we Catholics take that literally, that becomes our spiritual mother. She's not a goddess. And then we also see in Luke chapter one, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So when we look at Mary and her close relationship with Jesus, she's like the magnifying glass. If you get to know Mary, it magnifies your understanding of Jesus. And I think like if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, Bryson. Uh, I haven't watched it, no. You haven't seen it? Okay. Well, I mean, there's this great scene where he falls down and the whole time you see Our Lady, the, the Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross. And a lot of people, even who aren't Catholics, are like, wow, when I see that, I, I more understand the suffering of Jesus and, and what he was trying to accomplish for us on the cross. So when it comes to praying... We Catholics believe that when you die, if you're in God's love and in his grace, you don't exit out of the church. In fact, you go more deeper into the church. So when Peter and Paul became martyrs and died, they didn't somehow check out and excommunicate themselves from the church. No, they actually went deeper. They were there with Jesus. So just like I could say, hey, Bryson, uh, man, my whole family is so sick right now, like, man, we, we're going to die. And I can say, could you please pray for our family? And you're like, yeah, I got you. I'll pray for you. you what are you going to do? You're going to get on your knees and you're going to go to Jesus and say, hey, the Marshall family needs some help. Please help them, Lord, right? So I also believe as a Catholic that just as I can through Zoom, we're on Zoom right now. Where are you? Are you in Texas? Where do you live? Tennessee. Tennessee. I can say through the Zoom, will you pray for me? And you're like, I'll pray for you. If you wanted to say there's some kind of like 4G Zoom with us in heaven right now, I could go, Peter and Paul, pray for my family. We're sick. And they'd be like, okay, we'll pray for you. We're in heaven. We're actually right here with Jesus. We'll pray for you. You can say it to the Virgin Mary. You can say it to anyone who's in heaven, please pray for me. And they do. 
Now, all of their prayers, you you rightly said, Bryson, all of their prayers are mediated through Jesus Christ as the high priest. None of them get to do a go around. Not even the Virgin Mary gets to skip Jesus and go to the Father. So all of her intercessions, all of Peter, Paul, Mary Magdalene, name somebody in heaven, all of their prayers go through Jesus. So it's it's not that we replace Jesus. It's just that we see everybody in heaven is still on the team and we still ask them to pray. Okay, so basically, which, and I'm glad because I was about to ask about the saints, but you already explained it. Um, and also one of the questions was about Jesus being a mediator. And I feel like you answered that Jesus is yeah. still the mediator between us and God, but you're sort of saying like Mary and the saints is a mediator between us and Jesus sort of, uh, not, they're not mediators. Cause we can go directly to Jesus. Just like I can say, Jesus, my family's really sick, help me. And then I can send a text out or I can call you and say, Hey, will you also jump on the prayer chain? Right. Yeah. And get everybody praying. Like we obviously pray for one another and that that reality extends even to people who are in heaven. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, now, one of my questions. Uh, so it's about priests and, and certain leaders in the Catholic church that are required not to be married. Yeah. Uh, my question is first Timothy three, it says an overseer overseer is required to be um, a husband to, to an actual wife. Like the context is an actual wife. So I know, um, I know, you know, when I was, when I researched Catholicism, it says their wife is the church. Um, but, but my question, do you think that is sufficient to be scripturally accurate? So in the history of Catholicism, and even to this day, there are bishops, the word there in Greek is episkopos, the overseer, um, and priests and presbyters and deacons who have been married. Uh, so that's not necessarily like a dogmatic thing. We just hold that, you know, for example, St. Paul was an overseer. He was an apostle and he wasn't married. So, and also Timothy apparently wasn't married either. So there are, even in the early church, you're not required to be married. The requirement is you can only have had one wife. So if you've been married like four times, Apparently, Paul's not down with that. He doesn't want you to be an overseer, a bishop. So it's more of a, we we have disciplines and we have dogma, and this is a discipline. We just look at like St. Paul and all the missionary work and all the preaching and all the letter writing he did. He was a celibate. And that's the ideal because Jesus says some men become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He says that. So if Jesus is commending that some men become eunuchs, a eunuch is technically a guy with his genital or his testicles cut off, but he's not, I don't think Jesus is telling people to cut off their gonads, right? Uh, oh, not nah, because uh, in, in the Tanakh it says people, exactly. certain people with without that can't even enter the church. And, and even and in Catholicism, if a man loses his, his nuts, he can't be a priest. But anyway, Jesus said... <laughs> Old Testament stuff, right? Jesus, <laughs> I'm waiting for like the D's nudge joke. But <laughs> uh, eunuchs, you, if you, he says there are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, and so we say, yeah, that's the that's the highest calling, right? If you're going to say, because we believe marriage is a sacrament, holy matrimony. So if you're going to be like, I'm not going to enter in the mat, uh, matrimony sacrament. I'm instead going to dedicate all my time all my powers, all my energies into the kingdom of God, uh, that's the best. And so that's, although there are exceptions in the Catholic church, that's kind of the, the, the highest calling. And that's, that's, what's preferred. Awesome. Um, also just, to just, just to go back to Mary one time, cause I know people are going to want to know this yeah. question. I, I, I forget if you answered it is, do you, do you believe Mary was perfect, sinless? Well, I, I think perfect and sinless, I mean, she's a creature. So insofar as she was created, and it kind of goes back to, to Jesus honoring his mother, like how do you perfectly honor your mother? Okay, well, would you want her to be saved when she was seven or when she was 13? Well, you'd want her to be saved when she was seven and just keep moving that back. So in the Catholic church and in the East, we hold that from the very moment in which she was conceived by her father and, and her mother, that the Holy Spirit came into her. So when she was like an embryo, like a sperm and an egg come together, she's now a person, right? She's not just a clump of cells. She is a person with a soul. In that very moment, because Jesus had to honor his mother perfectly, he gave her the Holy Spirit. 
And that's unique. No one else has received that honor because that's his mom. That's his mother. And then also in Genesis 3.15, God says that he'll put enmity between the woman and the serpent. And we believe the woman was not Eve because Eve was sinful, that the woman um, who would one day bear a son, a seed, is the Virgin Mary. She's the woman. And so there is, we believe, perfect enmity between the serpent, the devil, and the mother of Jesus. So if she was a sinner and all that, she would be serving the serpent. And we say that's impossible. Uh, She can't serve the serpent. So we do believe Jesus is her savior. She even says in Luke, uh, God, my savior, but that he saved her in the most perfect way. I didn't know that part about uh, Genesis and Catholicism. That's very interesting. But that leads me to a perfect next question from audience questions. What is Catholic's view on abortion? Now, I don't know why this was a a lot of people ask this question, and I don't even know why. So I'm just let you answer it because I don't even I don't even understand the question, but I got it so much I had to ask. So the the Catholic view on abortion is whenever a sperm and egg meet up, right, and it becomes an embryo in that moment that has a human soul. God creates a human soul, and that is a person. Now, you may say, well, he can't see or he can't walk, whatever. But I mean, even a baby, when they come out the womb, can't walk can't talk and yet it's a person so we believe in life begins at conception not later on not halfway through not when the baby's born but right at the beginning so any termination of that embryo is a murder let me repeat that any termination of that embryo from that moment is a murder and that also includes this is a little bit controversial but if you take the birth control pill that renders the uterus incapable of accepting a fertilized embryo. So you have a human with a soul in the fallopian tubes coming in, and then that newly conceived embryo attaches to the uterus and begins to grow. If you're taking the birth control pill or the plan B, and that embryo can't latch in, that embryo just comes right out and dies. And so this is another reason why the Catholic Church is not just against abortion, but also against contraception in all forms, including condoms and birth control pill and all that. Oh, to be clear, I'm against all of that also. So based. Good. Um, <laughs> now, this next question is a two part question. And if it didn't come from the audience, I would have asked it anyway. So it's both. Um, people say Catholics change the commandments. Um, and. Is that true? And then I'm going to go to the next one after that. Yeah. So the 10 commandments, there's 10 commandments, obviously. Now the Catholic church and the Lutheran church, I guess the Lutherans are just following the Catholics, number them differently. But if you put the text side by side and you read it, they are word for word the same. There is no change in them. What happened is, is so commandment number one, thou shall have no gods before me, right? And thou shalt not have any graven image, I think is number two for the for the in the Protestant one. In the Catholic one, those two are combined. So thou shalt have no gods before me and no graven images. That's it, right? And then number two is thou shalt not take God's name in vain. Whereas in the Protestant, that's number three. Mm-hmm. And then when you get down to number nines and nine and ten, you have in the Catholic one, don't covet your neighbor's wife is number nine and don't covet your neighbor's goods is number 10. Whereas in the Protestant one, they combine that one to don't cover your neighbor's wife and don't cover your neighbor's good. But when you list them up, it's the same. Okay. Now, um, how about the Sabbath? This is where sort of my question oh. come in. Um, Cause the Sabbath did seem to change and the official, an official decree was made by Constantine. So um, my question is, why did Catholics change the Sabbath, if that if that makes sense? Yeah, so in the Old Testament, you have a lot of symbolism, especially based on the third day, the seventh day, and then the eighth day. So the seventh day is associated with creation and the Sabbath, and the eighth day is associated with circumcision. And eight is sort of the number of eternity. In fact, if you take the name of Jesus in Greek, as it's written in the New Testament, and you add up those numbers, you get the number 888, just like 666 is the mark of the beast. The name of Jesus is 888. So this idea of eight is the eternal, eight is the idea of the new covenant, eight is what comes after the Old Testament Sabbath. And so we see Christ 
rose again, not on Friday, not on Saturday, the Sabbath. In fact, he rested perfectly on the Sabbath because he was in the tomb. That's like the most perfect Sabbath ever. And on the eighth day, which is the third day, beginning the new creation, he's the new Adam. He initiates the new creation. He initiates the church all on Sunday. And so the day of the week associated with the new covenant is Sunday. We see Christ appears to the apostles the first time on a Sunday. He appears again on a Sunday. And in the book of Revelation, John says that he was in worship on the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And in the book of Acts, we see that they come to meet together. It says on the first day of the week. So already in the New Testament, we're seeing the assembly of Christians coming together way before Constantine. Um, even uh, Justin Martyr, who's in the second century, he's less than 100 years after the apostles, he talks about how they come together early in the morning on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So in the New Testament, yes, Saturday is the Sabbath, but Sunday is the initiation of the new covenant and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's why we meet together for the Eucharist, for the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. Okay. Um, my next question would be for me. Um, we understand that the canon came together over the course of multiple councils. Um, and in these councils, it was decided, it was a bunch of bishops came together and decided um which books belonged in the canon and which books don't belong to the canon. My question is. Do you believe that God gave the what you believe is the one true church? Do you believe God gave the one true church authority to pick and choose which scriptures was his word and which ones weren't? Uh, yes, because otherwise, like, how would we know that Esther is in the book of the is a book of the Bible? Or how do we know that the book of Jude is in the is in the Bible? We don't. We have to have someone tell us which books are in and which books aren't. So, like, often I'll talk to people and they'll say, Well, the Bible, this, the Bible, I'm like, well, which Bible are you talking about? Because not everyone, not all Christians on earth agree with what the Bible is. Like, you're working with a Bible that was curated and selected by Martin Luther in the 1500s. Now, are you going to go with that? Or there's other, there's other viewpoints on what the Bible is. And so, yes, in we Catholics believe in the year of our Lord, 382, there was a council in Rome, and the Pope at that time was named Pope Damasus, and they finally decreed and said, this is the Bible. It's the 27 books of the New Testament, and then it's the whole Old Testament canon, which corresponds to the Septuagint, and it's what the Protestants know, plus seven other books. So the books of our Bible actually come out to 72 if you understand Baruch as part of Jeremiah, uh, which is a holy number, and that's the that's the New Testament canon. And we say Martin Luther had no authority to say, well, this is my canon. I mean, who's he? Speaking of that, this is a question that's not even on the list. How do, <clears throat> how do Catholics view Martin Luther? Because Martin Luther was a Catholic. You know, some say he was excommunicated. Some say he left. Yeah, Martin Luther uh, was a Catholic priest. Yeah. So yeah. with that being said, how do Catholics view Martin Luther? Nobody asked that question on Twitter, but I saw people bring up Martin Luther. So he's a heresy arc, okay. which is like an arch heretic. Like he's a real bad heretic. And uh, <laughs> the, the bad thing about Luther is, is he believed in justification by faith alone. And when he translated Romans chapter three into German, he actually wrote just, justified by faith alone. But in the Greek, there is no alone. He added that word in Romans chapter three to prove. So all these German people read the Bible like, oh yeah, it's, it's faith alone right here in the Bible. And it's like, no, you're excommunicated. You can't just like add words in the Bible to uh, to make your pet theory work. So yeah, Luther is, uh, he's a bad guy and he's a heretic. That leads me to a perfect next question that everybody asked also. And I know you've been prepared for this one. So I'll wait a little bit. Um, Explain save by faith plus works or however people view it. Now, before you answer the question, 
let's be clear i don't believe in that faith alone stuff and i I don't know if you already knew that but uh yeah i don't uh but you know most christians do so and they view catholics as y'all think y'all are saved by words yada 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 so can you uh, please explain that for everybody yeah i mean nowhere in the bible does it say faith alone except in the book of james the epistle of saint james and there it says we are not saved by faith alone. James 2.24. Do you see that a man is just uh, that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone? And this is why Martin Luther wanted to take the book of James out of the Bible. He actually said, the quote is, I wish I could throw Jimmy into the flames. He was talking about the book of James because he realized the book of James contradicts what he was trying to teach. This is why I say Martin Luther is a heresiarch. He's a heretic. All right, he's just playing fast and loose with the scriptures. He's not actually submitting to the word of God. He's putting his own ideas in the word of God. And that's why he's excommunicated. He's bad news. So the way you're saved, you're saved by God's grace. Grace is the life of, of God. And that grace is poured down in you. And that moment is called justification. And we are justified by faith. And the instrument for that is baptism. All right, so... Things here are maybe a little more complicated than people maybe normally think about it, but I'm just giving you the Catholic take on it. So baptism, is it's kind of like if a man and a woman get married, they love each other. The man wants to die for her. She wants to die for him. We want to be married. We want to have kids. We want to build a home. We want to get each other to heaven. They have all the right things, right? But until they actually stand at an altar and say the vows, and he says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you aren't married. And you can't have sex, right? You have to go through the ritual, the rite that then allows you to have the the benefits of holy matrimony in a sexual relationship. Okay, so that's kind of an analogy. Like you can say, I love Jesus. I'm a disciple. I serve God. I read the Bible every day. But until you go and get baptized, which is the ceremonial like affirmation that I'm a disciple of Jesus, you're not in the church, right? So baptism is sort of that, notarized sacrament that establishes you as you are in the church and you have the rights of being in the church. You can receive the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Mass. Uh, you can get confirmed. You can. We could talk about sacraments maybe later. But So you believe, you're baptized, and then you are required by Jesus Christ to obey his commandments. There is none of this, well, I believe in Jesus so I can do what I want to do. So it's faith and works that's just how like life is if i if i'm married i love my wife i just can't say well i believe i'm married but i don't have to do anything like that's that's stupid i mean nobody believes that's how that's how relationships work so you can't say i have a relationship with jesus and then i'm not going to obey him or do any works or that's not required no like real relationships require you to do things so faith faith without works is dead and that's what james says you have you say you believe you know works Dead faith, dead faith doesn't save. Okay, and since you brought it up, the one one of the questions is, um, are the seven sacraments biblical? Yes. So I'll give you the verses. I have them right here because I knew people were going to ask that. So our seven <laughs> sacraments are baptism. I think everybody uh, who reads the Bible or, you know, even Protestants are going to be like, yeah, baptism, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 28, you know, go out in all the world teaching them all that I taught you to observe and baptize them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost so that's that one uh the other one uh, is the eucharist so this is the night before he he died on the cross he took bread in the passover ritual and he said this is my body and this is my blood and we as catholics and also the eastern orthodox we believe that the bread and the wine literally and metaphysically transubstantiates into the body and blood of Jesus. It's not just a symbol. You aren't eating bread in the Eucharist. You're eating the body of Christ. So those are two of the sacraments, and they're both in the Bible. Uh, Another sacrament is holy orders. This is being ordained to be a deacon, a presbyter, also known as a priest, or a bishop or overseer. Um, and that's in Acts chapter 6, it's in First Timothy, it's in Titus, so all of that is biblical. Another sacrament is matrimony. 
That's when a man and a woman, not two dudes, not two women, not three people, but a man and a woman join together to start a family to procreate and nurture and educate children for the next generation and do it in the Lord. And that's one, you know, Luther said matrimony is not a sacrament. Catholics say matrimony is a sacrament and the state does not have authority over matrimony. Only the church has authority over matrimony. And we, and we also look back to Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding. And we're like, that's Jesus blessing the sacrament of matrimony. So that's four sacraments so far. Another one is confirmation. We see this in Acts chapter eight and in Hebrews six. This is when a bishop lays his, after you've been baptized, the bishop puts his hands on you and he prays for the Holy Ghost to come down on you. Some Protestants call this baptism in the Holy Spirit. We call it confirmation. And he also anoints you with sacred chrism or sacred oil and has the Holy Spirit called down on you. Another uh, one of the seven sacraments is confession or penance. After you're baptized and you commit a mortal sin, a mortal sin is a sin against the love of God. It's like uh, cheating on your wife, murdering people, stealing a million dollars, bad stuff, looking at porn. Um, that kind of stuff is a mortal sin. And if you do that, you have to go to confession and confess it in the presence of a priest. You confess it to Jesus in the presence of a priest. People don't know that. And then he declares you absolved in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I think the last sacrament I haven't said is anointing of the sick or extreme unction. This is when you're really sick or if you're about to die, the uh, elders, the presbyters, the priests come and they anoint you and pray for your healing and your salvation. You can see this in James chapter five, where he tells you to have the presbyters come and anoint you. So all seven sacraments that I just mentioned are all in the Bible uh, and they're derived from the Bible. So we, we Catholics believe you can't create a new sacrament. You know, not even a pope, a bishop. It's only the seven that Jesus gave us. And those seven sacraments are the covenantal ritual signs, tangible signs that Jesus gives us to feel his love, to know his love, and to be connected with him. So we're a very tangible people. Uh, we believe that, you know, it's not just something I think about in my mind but it's something that I experience. You know, we have incense and chanting and sacraments. It's very, it's very tangible. Thank you. Uh, also, my question is, is the Pope's interpretation of the Bible perfect? Or what no. does it mean to say anything that the Pope does is perfect? What does this mean? A lot of people ask, a lot of people ask those questions. Yeah. So we do. So first of all, what is the Pope? Who, who is the Pope? So we Catholics, we read the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see that every single time they're listed, Peter's always the first one. And we also know that of the 12 apostles, Jesus changed the name of one of them, Simon, he changed Simon. it to Peter. And Peter is Greek for rock. In fact, in other parts of the New Testament, his name is Kepha, and that's Aramaic for rock. Sometimes it's translated Cephas, but it's really Kepha. And that's because Jesus said to Peter, he says, hey, who do people say I am? And they give all the different, you know, polls on it. And then Peter says, you are Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. And he says, you're right. And he says, and you, Simon Barjona, are Peter, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So we believe that the church is governed by bishops, overseers, but amongst them, just like in the 12 apostles, there's one who is the leader of the bishops. There's one who's the leader of the apostles, and that was Peter, and he had a name change. In fact, the name Rock is a title for God in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. So Christ actually gave Peter the name Rock. It actually goes back to Daniel, where there's a vision where a giant rock comes out of heaven and smashes the fourfold pagan idol who are the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and then grows into the whole world. So he actually gives Peter that semi-divine title to him to be the leader. And on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail. Give it. And he gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He gives those to Peter. So we believe that at, when Peter died, he those keys of Peter were passed to a guy named Linus. He was the second pope. And then after Linus, there was another guy named Anacletus. 
he was the third pope. And then after Anacletus, there was another guy named Clement. He was the fourth. And then after him, Evaristus, he was the fifth. And it goes on and on and on throughout the centuries to the present day pope. Now, you know, Peter, he messed up a lot. He wasn't perfect. He denied Christ, right? He makes mistakes in the gospels. So we don't believe our pope is perfect. In fact, there's been some very wicked and evil popes in the past 2000 years. What we believe is, is that the Pope receives the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So when he needs to clarify something on only two subjects, doctrine or morals, those are the only two things, doctrine or morals, he can use the power of the keys to define those things. So his interpretation of those specific things are what's perfect. And yes, and it's it's not just his personal interpretation, like, oh, well, my take on it is this, so that's the new thing. He has to say, this is what was received in the deposit of faith. This kind of goes back to scripture and tradition. And I therefore define and declare with the keys of St. Peter that this is the case. And so the popes don't often do that. Like the current one right now, he has never done that once or the one before him. So it's actually a rare thing for a pope to do. And then he's also um, sort of the lead bishop who governs the whole church. So that's what the pope is. And popes make mistakes. Popes aren't sinless. We don't worship the pope. Um, I'm very critical of the pope. Um, he's just the pastor of all pastors. Awesome. Thank you. Now I have two more questions. And if we have time, which I don't think we sure. will, I'll ask more. Uh one question is explain purgatory and is it biblical? Yes. Okay. Well, this, so purgatory is the idea. So we Catholics believe you're justified. You get God's grace. He makes you a new creation, a new person, but then we still struggle in this life. We still have temptations. Uh, we still commit sins. So this process of going from being a new Christian to becoming a saint that's someone who's sinless, right? Takes time. It's an up and down. I mean, you think of a graph, you know, it's kind of up and down. Hopefully, maybe you crash down, you got to come back. That whole process is called sanctification. It's in the Bible. And sanctification literally means the making of a saint. And saint is just, it comes from a Latin word meaning holy, sanctus, right? So we're called to be saints. St. Paul says that over and over, called to be saints. We have to become saints. So what happens is, is you're a Christian, and let's say, you know, you're not in mortal sin, you're not rebelling against God, you know, you're not murdering people or committing sodomy or adultery or whatever, but you're not really on the path, you're not really becoming a holy person, and you die. Well, you're you're called to be a saint, but maybe you're only at like 64% on your journey to become holy, right? Well, nothing holy can enter into heaven. Now, most Protestants will say, well, Jesus just snaps his fingers and boom, you're automatically holy and you go into heaven. Well, what we hold is Jesus actually judges you in that moment, and you go through some sort of purification process to bring you from 63% to 100%. And that purification we call purgatory. Now, whether it lasts in time, like two years or four years or a thousand years, we don't know. Like This is outside of time. But we do know in 1 Peter 3, it says some people will be saved through fire. First, uh, Sorry, 1 Corinthians 3.15 says you'll be saved by through fire. And so we look at that and like, man, some people, when they die, in fact, a lot of people, most of us aren't fully ready. And so we're going to have to be purified, salted with fire, Jesus says. But also this goes back to the canon question, because Second Maccabees talks about how when some of the warriors died, uh, they had pagan talismans on them. And so what the Jews did is they sent money to Jerusalem to have sacrifices and prayers said for the dead for the forgiveness of, the, of their sins because they died not quite, quite quite right with the Lord. So if you accept Second Maccabees, which I do as a Catholic, you have prayers for the dead. Well, why would you pray for the dead if they're already in heaven? Doesn't make sense. There must be some purification process, and that's what we call purgatory. So if you accept Second Maccabees, like the Ethiopians and the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics, then you automatically are going to believe that. If you reject it like Luther did, well, then that's more of a problem. All right, awesome. Now I'm asking a question that so many people asked. I don't know if you prepared for this one. And uh, this might be the last question, so I got to end it off on one that's more exciting. Uh, the question is, 
in the commandments and many times throughout the Tanakh, it says don't bow to graven images uh, and idols of this nature. And a lot of people say that when you bow down to these pictures of Jesus or the statues and things of that nature, that is going against those commandments. What would be a Catholic response to that claim? Yes. Okay. So it's very clear that in the Ten Commandments, God says, do not worship graven images. We all agree on that. And then also in the Torah, God commands Moses to create statues. You know what I'm talking about? Statues? In the Holy of Holies, which is the holiest the place. Holy, the, the Holy of Holies. I mean, but that's, it's not a statue. It's a, um, Moses had to build a, uh, on the water words in my head, the we arc. go to a church and you see the uh thing. It's like so, something like something on the ground. It's a it's a place for worship, but it wasn't a it wasn't a statue per se. Well, there was the Ark of the Covenant, mm -hmm. and on each side of the Ark of the Covenant were two statues of angels, a cherubim on each side. Mm -hmm. And so in the Holy of Holies, there is statuary of angels, right? That and the Holy of Holies represents or signifies. Uh, the Garden of Eden, but beyond that, heaven itself. This is why in Hebrews, altar. Jesus went, I'm, I'm sorry, I just came to my mind. Altar. You think altar? Yes. Yeah. But the altar was technically outside the tabernacle in the courtyard. If you go yeah, into the holy place, there's the menorah there, and then you go past there into the holy of holies. There's the Ark of the Covenant, and on either side of the Ark of the Covenant were two statues of angels that went over the Ark of the Covenant. And so we Catholics say, well, wait. So God told Moses to put statues in the holiest place in all of Israel and all of Jerusalem and even the temple. And so if that's the case, the Ten Commandments is not saying you can't have any sort of art or imagery or statues. In fact, God says to Moses, there should be art. There should be imagery in the holy places. And this is why in our churches we have pictures, statues of angels. But in the New Covenant, it's not just angels in heaven. We believe when Jesus died on the cross, he brought all the Old Testament people out of Sheol, which is the netherworld, and brought them to heaven. And then everyone after that, after then, also comes to heaven. So we're like, well, heaven now has angels and humans in it. So when we worship and we have churches, our holy of holies has statues or a picture of St. Peter or the Virgin Mary, you know, all this stuff is depicted. Um, and that goes back. I mean, you see that in the early church of iconography and images. Now, worshiping images is not allowed. We only are allowed. So in, in the year, uh, in the 700s, I can't remember what year it was. I want to say it was 787 or 797. There was a council called the Council of Nicaea II. And they said, look, we got all these people and they're like bowing down or lighting candles. Is this idolatry? Is this breaking the Ten Commandments? So all the bishops got together and it was ratified by the Pope. And here is what was defined. They said, look, you can only worship, and the Greek word is latria. You can only worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's it. Below that, you can honor or venerate. The Greek word was dulia. It's a different word. You can honor and venerate uh, the emperor, politicians, if you wanted to, like the Queen of England. I mean, the Queen of England wasn't back then, but they were Greek emperors. Um, the flag. Like, if you take the flag and you burn it and stomp on it, uh, dude, you're dishonoring America, right? If I take a statue of Mary and jump on it, you're dishonoring Mary. So what the council said is, look, you can't, you can only worship the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there are saints and there are people and there are things like the cross or the flag. You can honor and respect those. Like, if I took a picture of your mother and I was like punching it and throwing it on the ground, burning it, you'd be like, dude, why are you disrespecting my mom? The converse is true as well. I could say, man, your mom's such a beautiful woman. I'm going to put her on the mantle over here, honor her. And you'd be like, man, thanks. You're honoring my mom. So that's how Catholics understand it. We don't now, is there someone maybe in South America that's worshiping a statue of a saint? Yeah, probably that's bad. I condemn that. I rebuke that. That's bad. But, you know, to have a flag in my front yard is cool, it honors America. And I can have a, a statue of the Virgin Mary or a picture of, Peter and Paul or Jesus in my house and say, you know what? I honor Jesus. I honor these holy people. And, uh, and that is allowed. So the distinction between worship and veneration or worship and respect 
is a very hard line in Catholicism that we have to keep. Yo, thank you so much uh, for answering the questions. I have more, and I wish I had more time, but I talked to you earlier, and I do have to head out because I, I have like a, I do a billion things at once, but to me, God is more important, so I like force time for things like this. Like those few moments, I spare moments I have, I, I, I do it to do this to create understanding so people can, so when we do have the conversation between Protestant, Catholicism, or messianic jew or judaism or you know all of the orthodoxy you know all of these things you know we can get the information from teachers and people that are well versed in those conversations rather than our own emotional views so i do want to thank you so much for coming on but you have to come on again because i have so many questions let's do it man i go all day we'll just flow it all day <laughs> these are great these are great questions by the way i thank you and thank your audience like they're very intelligent smart questions um and they're challenging questions and uh i just i thank you bryson for having me on and just you know going through some scripture and history and and uh just trying to clear the air and set the record straight on some of these things so thank you so much and god bless your audience i really appreciate being on here oh and matter before you go as soon as you're done with this i'm gonna end it two minutes please uh what would you say to somebody that doesn't believe in God to convince them that God is real. If you had to say anything, I would say you need to pray. And you say, if you're real, if you're really the good shepherd, I need you to guide me and show me you just ask and you shall receive. I really believe that. I don't, I really don't think you need to, I mean, you can go buy books and study atheism and study all that, but I think you really need to pray and say, I, in my heart of hearts, I am earnestly asking to know you if you're real and to believe in you and then to reveal to me the full truth that you've revealed on earth if it's real. And I think he'll do it. If you have, if you go to God with that open heart, seeking and knocking on the door, he's going to open the door and he's going to teach you. So go and ask him. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Taylor Marshall, Gray Area Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it.